So you want to make sure that number one, your instructor is also a student, right? The minute an instructor thinks they know all that, they're they're suffering Dunning-Kruger at that point, and they're going to teach you what they know, you know? And so you want to make sure your instructor is training, he's competing, he's in the world, because it changes. Things are changing all the time. Welcome to episode three of the Frugal Firearms Podcast, the podcast designed to help you, the shooting enthusiast, to get the most for your dollar, get the most enjoyment, get the most fun, get the most out of your equipment. I'm here with my guest, Ken. Ken, say hello to our guests. Hello, listeners, and we've got a wonderful guest for you uh, to, to enjoy with us today. Yeah, this is our first guest on the show. We have not uh, done that before, but... I think that I've made it very clear in earlier episodes. And by the way, if you haven't listened to the earlier episodes, I would encourage you to uh, go back and go through the uh, the extensive library of episodes zero, the collector's edition beta test that actually came out pretty well. So we posted it and episodes one and two, where we talk about our value ratings. Uh, today is going to be a little bit different because we're not going to be spending much of any time on actual equipment itself, but we're going to be talking again to our first guest, who is going to be discussing the value proposition of training and why training is an important part of your overall repertoire and your overall toolbox, if you will. And in so doing, uh, encourage you to seek out, if, if you're not in the area where our guest is located, you know, seek out local training or seek out some of the national level trainers when they come through your area because there is value in this. I've experienced it. And we're starting off with this as our first guest, because I think that the value of training is vastly underrated and needs to be really pushed out there. So Greg from Defensive Arts Center in Portland, Oregon, please introduce yourself. Tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Tell us how you got there. <laughs> well, it's only only 45 minutes, so I, I'll, I'll cut. I'll, I'll give you the short version. Um, so thanks for having me, guys. Much appreciate. Um, I really, really like what you're doing. Uh, I think that's huge. A um, little bit about me. So um, when I got, uh, I'm a nerd. That's that's the, the the first and foremost. I have 40 years healthcare IT background. So although I do have, I am a, a veteran. I've been, you know, a firearm enthusiast most of my life. As most of you know, the cost of taking on firearms as a as a hobby seriously is is cost prohibitive for for many many people as it was for me. It wasn't until I got into my 40s that I had enough disposable income to actually you know, step out and and get serious. And so I started training, I started competing, I started traveling. Uh, and it took me, oh, I don't know, less than six months to realize in my, in my travels that there are way more people carrying guns that shouldn't than should. I was absolutely astounded at the, I want to say ignorance level, not, not, not ignorance is not a bad word. That's, I'm not saying uh, that don't, don't confuse that with, you know, uh, um, a negative term, but ignorance, just lack of knowledge and the firearms industry is is kind of 
ensconced in that. Uh, it is inherently uh, safety oriented. And as such, they kind of hold uh, students into fixed arenas so that you really can't do anything wrong and you really can't 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 screw up my background is martial arts so i've got uh many years of private instruction in northern shaolin kung fu northern shaolin eagle claw at age 60 i'm currently studying ninjutsu because i'm an idiot realizing that my body does not bounce on the mats like it did in my 20s and 30s but I, as as i you know, as i traveled and i started to realize this i realized that there was a gap there was something missing in training and the, what i focus on is real world self-defense as it presents and i mentioned that i'm kind of a nerd um i have downloaded the databases from the Dep department of justice the fbi i threw them into microsoft sql and i started studying that you know what is what does real world violence look like in this country under the umbrella of pragmatic self-defense and I realized very quickly that there really is no amount of going to a gun range in a live fire environment that can teach you self-defense with a firearm. Because real world violence starts inside of 15 feet. You don't know what's coming. You have to process the attack. It takes you half a second to do what's called an OODA loop. By the time you're prepared to defend yourself, um, your attacker's at three feet or less. Uh, that's a whole different skill set. And so what I set up for the Defensive Arts Center is an entire facility to bridge that gap. Uh, we train with simunitions, which are less lethal rounds. That allows us, it fully racks a Glock 17, uh, or uh, we have uh, carbine platforms, we have shotguns. Uh, that does actually shoot projectiles. It gives you recoil, but it uh, I could shoot you in the knee, and uh, I would go to the doctor because you'd beat the heck out of me for shooting you in the knee, but you wouldn't have to. So you said something that I think that I wanted to walk back to just for a moment, because there's going to be a certain number of people who are in our listener base who are going to think, well, wait a minute, carrying a, a weapon for self-defense is, as Ken and I discussed on a previous uh, edition, is not just a human right, it's a natural right. Mm -hmm. And you postulated, and by the way, I'll tell you that I agree with you, that a lot of people who are carrying guns shouldn't be. Now, I think that that's going to rub certain people the wrong way because they're going to think that, well, wait a minute, you're trying to take away, let's say, for example, my First Amendment right because I don't speak well, I'm not allowed to talk. So how would you differentiate that? And how does the data that you've downloaded from the DOJ and possibly even other sites like you know, John Curry's active self-defense site and things like that. How do those things correlate to backing up that statement so that you actually get into the mind of people who haven't practiced enough, who haven't been trained enough, and so that they understand that the world out there is not going to be forgiving when they get to that point of ultimate need where you either win or you don't go home? Mm -hmm. So the short, the short answer is... Um what I call Dunning-Kruger. So Dunning-Kruger effect, if you're not familiar, uh, Dunning and Kruger are a couple of psychologists uh, best described as um, a person's artificial belief in their ability to do something based on a minimum amount of experience. Uh, one of the things about you know firearms training is it is cost prohibitive. And a lot of people don't understand. Well, it's not true. It's not true. A lot of people, they do understand what it takes to become highly proficient at something. So let's talk about sports professionals, right? How many free throws do you throw before you get out there in front of people and so that you are absolutely sure that you're going to make that shot? 
Um, everything we do in life, we we train, we understand the necessity for repetitive training. But for some reason that that has um, kind of gone by the wayside a lot. And, and obviously not with everyone. This is not a, a blanket statement. But people are taught, uh, you know, quite often in uh, from a variety of instructors. I'll try to keep uh, company names out of uh, out of this, or I should say, certifying bodies, because there's there's a few of them out there. But um, generally speaking, it is just not based on reality. So you know, you you have to take you know uh, lessons to drive your car so that you're you're safe. Very few people have ever put themselves in a scenario where they have to manipulate and wield their firearm in a stressful situation. So a simple example, how many of you, you or your listeners, go and practice holster presentation and self-defense with a firearm in a full winter jacket with gloves on? I, I ask that question of my concealed carry holders on a regular basis, and the answer is almost none. And th and this is a class every every Christmas. That's my present. I offer a, a day where I'm open, and I just let people come in and and, and practice. You know, let's let's try that. Let's see what that really looks like. Because you, this is a lethal tool that you carry strapped to your backside in a public place that, with the click of a trigger, uh, takes is a life and death thing. And that that is a very very serious commitment. I think that, uh, and to your your point, Craig. I, I am not saying people shouldn't carry. That can't, may have come out quite wrong. Uh, what I'm saying is people should want to train. People should want to be able to, as I say, master that tool for all the right reasons. I mean, it is a serious consideration. Um, and so the level of training that I have, the level of training that I provide is all about repetitive practice, right? So how do you think that your... Uh, I, I, obviously, you're using sim munitions, which is, uh, I think, a big benefit. And a lot of people, I don't think, under maybe not understand the value of that because sim munitions hurt. Um, <laughs> and and that's a good thing because when you, you, you know, it, it's it's just going to produce, produce a welt a lot like a paintball gun would. But at the same time, you get immediate feedback and you get that increase in, in stress level uh, because you're hurt. And then your responses to that matter. And I think that a lot of people who are not going to be able to get to a facility like yours where you have simunitions and they're forced just to go to the more traditional trainers that, you know, operate at a square range and operate with an RSO, I'm, I'm sorry, range safety officer, if you don't know what I meant by that, uh, under very prescriptive, you know, draw to presentation, you know, shoot three rounds, reholster they're not going to get that kind of feedback. So what do people like that do if they don't have a comprehensive facility like yours? I mean, I guess it could be martial arts, could be jujitsu. A lot of people are not either in shape or are predisposed to commit their either their time, their money, or or just themselves to that level of actual violence. Are those the biggest problems that you think students will actually face in being effective? Let's say, you know, I hate to be pejorative, but in the street, like what will get you killed in the street? Mm -hmm. I think that that since you're doing it from a data perspective, uh, you already are baked into the the right answer on this. But I don't think that most people are, they're going to look for crutches. Let's say, for example, they're going to put a red dot on their new pistol, thinking that the red dot is going to be the panacea. It's going to be the thing that's going to be the differentiator and cause them to win the day. But it's more complex than that, isn't it? 
Oh, my word. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's uh, uh, people ask me that all the time. They're always asking about, you know, optics is just to take that as as an example. And although I don't disagree with optics um, at my age, all my rifles, of course, have optics. I don't put optics on my handgun. Um, back Thank before, you. Before. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Greg, we had this discussion last week where uh, I'm I'm like, I grew up with iron sights or, or even fiber optic on there. It's fine. But red down on top of a pistol, uh, I'm not there yet myself. But, but go ahead, Greg. I'm sorry. No, but tell me why. What's your what's your base reasoning? Uh, first of all, I think it's going to it's going to snag on something. I look at this thing. I have three quarters of an inch tall. It's going to snag on something. I probably have holsters that don't fit these things anyway. I probably need to buy new holsters, which I'm not don't want to spend more money it's just frugal firearms here but to me it's point and shoot i mean i wouldn't say particularly the under 21 feet it's not gonna do anything for me at all zip nothing now a light on the bottom i understand for illumination okay i get that but i don't know i just i can't quite get my eye you know my my eyes around literally uh putting a red dot on a slide not doing so it you, I think you nailed it. There's a there's the part about this, and and again, I'm I'm everything I do is really rather cerebral. Um, looking at the reason that I am don't prefer optics on my uh, handgun is is you said you know point and click. Um, it has to do with how the human brain works, right? It's the same reason I don't recommend you shoot at targets with bullseyes. If you have a red dot and you are training for self defense, that is a big difference between self-defense training and marksmanship training. And I don't want to get those two confused and I don't want to take anything away from, from competitors and marksmanship shooting, but they do have to be segregated. And if you have a red dot in training and every time you present, you your brain is going to go, where's my red dot? And it's going to adjust for perfect correction. And the problem that creates in a life and death situation, when you present, your brain will start to seek that red dot. And you could lose literally a life savings half of a second to a quarter of a second. So I tell people, if you have optics, I love them, turn them off when you train, you know, use them, do 100 repetitions, you know, presenting with the red dot on and then turn it off because you do to survive self-defense. You have to be able to use absolute flashlight picture, natural point and kinesthetic aiming. So you have to train your body to present that firearm absolutely the same, absolutely flat every single time. That's uh, actually, and, yeah, that that mirrors right on top of it. Uh, I was talking about the body mechanics of it before I actually referenced uh, videos that were posted uh, online where the person demonstrating had no sights on his gun. It was hitting eight inch plates at like 50 yards with no sights whatsoever, just because he has a, a disciplined you know, body mechanic uh, approach to repetition and is able to do this reliably on call every time. The reason I think, and, and this isn't to be, it isn't to disagree. And, and as you said, the statistics are that the person is going to be on top of you in no time at all. Uh, where sites wouldn't matter any longer whatsoever is that I don't, I'm not a strong believer in front sight focus. And the reason is that I think that an untrained person, particularly, and even a trained person to a degree, when faced with true stress, is going to focus on the threat and not on the front sight. And it's very hard to get yourself to change your focal plane away from the thing that is trying to kill you and by the way is moving yeah and it's actually impossible okay <laughs> there you are and that's why i think that getting the 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 aiming device whatever the aiming device is 
literally in focus on the same focal plane as the threat makes sense. You know what my aiming, I also, I mean, think about this realistically, Craig, how old are you? Uh, I, I, I outdate you slightly. I'm 61. Okay. Uh, you wear glasses? I do not, sir. I hate you just a little bit right now. Um, and by the way, yeah, my, my, and my and my right eye vision uh, and right eye dominant is twenty fifteen. All right. Well, mo- most of us at at sixty have uh, myopia. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, and watch. Go to the range someday. Watch people. Right. What do they do? Is they have special glasses or goggles made, or they wear last year's prescription? Because what they're trying to do is get that focus on your front sight. Because for some reason. They're, they're ego driven to make sure that they're dropping, you know, five rounds into a one inch hole at 25 feet uh, to impress a bunch of people they don't know. Um, but what's reality? Reality at three o'clock in the morning and somebody's kicking your door and you don't have any glasses. Right. How can you shoot? I mean, have you trained to shoot without your glasses, without your optics, without, you know, so and this is what we talk about a lot because I'm the same way. I um, I can do four inch patterns at 25 feet. Uh, and I can't see my sights. They're nothing but a blur when I take my glasses off. Okay. But you know what my aiming di- device is? My left thumb. That's part of na- what we call natural point aiming. If you look at um, the grip, there's a new grip that's very popular. It comes out of Army Ranger School. But it has to do with your support hand thumb being way forward mm-hmm. on the slide. Right. And that's because what we're doing is we're canting our thumb forward. If that's your grip and every time you slow down and here, this is for your listeners, right? The number one thing, the number one training tip I will give you if you, if you're, when you go to live fire is slow down, shoot less rounds, right? Because people go in the, and they have 250 rounds and they're going to go bang, bang, bang until they're gone. Make every round count, make every round a training tool. So if you stop for a second and you present from, from Sewell or high compressed, and you think about that target. And the first thing I do when I punch out is I throw my left thumb, because I'm right-handed, throw mm-hmm. my left thumb right at center mass. I will hit center mass at 25 feet every single time, right? And down to where I do demos for uh, security officers here, armed security that I teach. And uh, with no glasses, no nothing on it, uh, I have a simulator at about 20 feet. I can just sit there and run, you know, two, two three-inch patterns, just multiple targets, and I can't see my sights at all, right? That's the power of, of repetition training. And we have, if we have time today, I'm happy to talk more about ways that your listeners can do this type of training at almost no cost to them. They do this in the comfort of your own home uh, to develop those types of skills, which are the very necessary skills that you need for real world self-defense. I think actually that's the sort of topic we'd want to jump right into now, if, if, if it makes sense, because, sure. you know. Frugal Firearms podcast is all about saving money. And I'm trying to make the, the case that, you know, paying for training is worth it. And, and, and Greg, you don't know the background between Ken and I. Ken and I have, uh, even though we've been friends for <laughs> nigh on five decades, we have slightly different perspectives on value. Yeah, I'm, I'm cheap and Craig is frugal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I just believe in value for your money. That's my thing. I want the best value. Right. And, and anything that you can do to help our, our students understand uh, our students, they're not our students. What do I say that for? Our listeners, you know, we're all, we're all in parity here. There's, there's not a hierarchy to understand what the value proposition of, of training is. Because I think here's my, here's my supposition. If I go train myself and I only get so far, but I can measurably increase my performance and I can subjectively increase my level of enjoyment, 
then I'm going to be more interested in paying for training later. Mm-hmm. And I have noticed, because I've you're not the only professional trainer I've met, that in the training community, a lot of this is actually exposure through the Ballistic Radio podcast, where it's trainers talking to trainers largely, that training is kind of an addiction, if you will. The more training you get, the more you want, which is a bit counterintuitive because you might think, well, I paid for training, I got my eight hours in, or I got my four hours in, or whatever the state required, I'm good to go. But I think that people that go above that minimum and start taking training classes crave that from a variety of instructors. And for example, next year I'm going to TACCON. Well, TACCON is a collection of probably 30 different trainers in three days. Mm -hmm. You get exposure to all of them. And I've heard that there's almost no training experience better than that because Mm -hmm. of the variety of opinions. And then you get to distill out the best that works for you. So yeah, if you want to go to that topic right now, just to get people sort of invigorated about training on their own, and then maybe that translates into their life of, you know, hey, now I know what I don't know. Now I'm learning something where my deficiencies are and where I could be better because I just realized I'm not that good. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, no, that's I think there absolutely the uh, the more that you learn, then the more you'll hold your instructor accountable, right? Because what you said is is interesting because there's there's a flip side to that conversation, right? The flip side is a lot of people say don't trainer bounce. If you keep just going from trainer to trainer to trainer. Um, you're going to wind up in a world of controversy, right? What they say is pick one trainer and glean from them everything that you can. That being said, as you learn more, as you become more proficient, you will very, very quickly be able to distill out of a trainer what is of benefit to you and what is not. But one of the things about training is you go to a four-hour seminar and you're exposed to a lot of stuff and then it's gone. You know, if you don't practice it. So the world, the word is called myelination, right? Myelination, very few people have heard of the word, um, but it, everybody knows what it is. It's muscle memory, right? The, it's the science of muscle memory. And I'm not, I could get into a, a half an hour dissertation about, you know, the, the, the chemistry behind it, but, and I'll spare you that. But I will tell you the science states that for, in the martial arts world, we used to call this the rule of two thousands. We said that one single technique had to be done like 2000 times before it would start to become uh, muscle memory or your ability to move without thinking, which by the way, those are the only skills that are available to you when your heart rate is 150 plus, uh, and you are in the, in the throes of self-defense. You can't think, you can't remember, you can't calculate, gee, today I'm carrying my gun at the five o'clock, but yesterday I was carrying it in, in a shoulder rig, right? Uh, that's when you go into what's called blackout freeze. You just, you stand there and you don't know what to do. So, and you can, you can you know, your listeners can Google that and, and uh, we, t- we teach every class I teach, every single class I teach, and we teach a ton of them here, starts with a conversation about, about myelination and that importance, importance of repetitive training. So you go to your training, you, you find an instructor, you get a four-hour seminar, you learn a bunch of tools. How do you reinforce those tools, right? The real science is one single technique takes 20 minutes a day for 12 straight weeks before it will start to myelinate a neural pathway. So that means we'll, we'll simplify that. Let's just say that happens to be 2,000 repetitions. How do you do that? At the price of ammo today, you can't afford to do that, right? So people don't. They convince themselves they know enough. So the interesting thing about myelination is you don't have to physically do it. If you've done it, 
right? Like I, I usually give a demonstration of my holster draw, right? I step way to the right, right? And and I don't teach what, I teach why in my classes. So instead of saying things like get off the X, which is not a why, I explain why we take that huge step. We step more than one body width. We're giving the attacker an OODA loop. We're getting our half second back, right? But then what can you do? You go to an indoor gun range, how far can you step to the right? Oh, about six inches. And you run mm-hmm. into the wall, right? Can so what I tell people, go ahead. Greg, just to, not to cut you off there, but for people who, I know what the OODA loop is, a lot of people don't. Could you just give a quick definition of that, please? Oh, apologies. I didn't even know I said it. <laughs> this is, you said it twice. <laughs> did I really? Wow. Yeah, you got to call me on that stuff. This, so OODA loop, this is uh, Colonel Boyd, Air Force pilot, figured this out many years ago. Um, it's kind of an industry standard. It's, it's fairly simple. Uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. This is a constant reinforcing loop that is being processed as we go about our business. Not weird, not crazy, right? And it goes right hand in hand with myelination. So the example I usually give in class very quickly is you're driving down the road and you hear a noise. You don't know what that noise is. You have to observe it. So there's your first your first letter. That's your observe. So you look at it and you go, holy, somebody's about to T-bone my car, right? Orient yourself. What the heck could I do about it? I could slam on the brakes. I could slurve to the right. I could slump on the accelerator. Pick one. That's your decide, right? And then you have to do it. Well, the first three steps of that take on a very young and healthy and very well-trained mind, at least a half a second. And when we're talking about life and death training, everything happens in these half-second increments, right? Now, as I said, it's a loop. It's an OODA loop. So it's constantly updating. At the point where you're orienting yourself, what could I do about this? You realize that you're not in danger. The guy hit dry pavement. He's stopping. He's not even on the same plane as you. Whatever. You're absolutely fine. And you don't need to do anything else. And at that moment in time, though, where's your foot? It's on the brake. And at no point in time was there any conscious thought that says, self, I need to pick up my foot and put it on the brake, right? That is a myelinated pathway. It And it is myelinated because it is supported every single time we get into vehicle and drive. And our firearms training needs to be the same way. So people ask me, how, how much do I train? I can't answer that because training is a lifestyle. It's not an event. I train all day every day, right? It's because the thing about myelination, if you've done it a couple of times, and then all of a sudden you find yourself at the gun range, and I cannot make that big step to the right. If you visualize yourself doing it, if you can think about yourself doing it, you're still firing the same neural pathway. So I tell people, when you go to the gun range, number one, slow down. Number two, when you're standing there with your fireman, you're looking at your target, and all you can do is step, step six inches to the right, project the mental image of yourself stepping three feet to the right and you're still firing the same neural pathways. And what that means is because what you will do in a crisis situation is what you do most often. And if all you step is six inches at the gun range, God forbid the time you ever have to use your firearm in self-defense, that's what you'll do. So Greg, if if I might uh, ask a question, Uh, I've got friends who are in law enforcement, you know, U.S. Secret Service and probation officers and so forth like that. They've always said that, you know, uh, training is a perishable uh, skill. So uh, some of the things that I'd like to hear from you is uh, some of the things you could suggest that a person could do at home on low cost to be able to, uh, after perhaps they've taken your training or if there's whatever training they've they've been able to do, what, what can they practice at home inexpensively? It's a great question. Um, there, there are a few things you can do. My, my favorite 
which I think everybody should, you know, as, as I, when I teach class, I tell people, if you buy one thing, one thing for your firearm, it needs to be a laser bullet. Um, and, and laser bullets are cool, right? I mean, when your gun goes click, that means it did its job, right? The click means the firing pin, you know, went forward, the striker went forward, the hammer fell. But instead of a primer, uh, these things have a little switch on them and they put a laser dot right down the bore site. So they give you visual feedback. So that's cool. Uh, what's cooler than that is the free software you can download for your cell phone. There's half a dozen of them. I use one called Laser Hit. Uh, you can point your camera at the target on the wall. And every time it sees the red dot on target, your camera goes bang. And it will, in fact, uh, show you, you know, where where you hit. So that's also cool. And, and we'll talk in a minute about an entire process of how you use that for serious myelination training. But I want to talk for a moment about why that one is so important. In uh, And this might get a little technical. You guys, your listeners may have to do a little bit of, a little bit of Google. But if you look at a regular cartridge, a regular cartridge, you know, uh, that goes into a firearm, it has what's called a head stamp. And that head stamp, in it, and we're talking about a semi-automatic pistol, it has that little groove around the back, right? Mm -hmm. That groove yep. is what the extractor gets a hold of to pull the cartridge into the ejector, et cetera, et cetera. A laser bullet doesn't have that, right? Which means once the laser bullet is stuffed in your barrel, it can't come out. It is, hmm. it is always in there. So you can rack that gun all day long. And that, that will not come out of your barrel. You have to remove it by inverting the firearm and using a very sophisticated removal tool called a chopstick. You just pop it out and then it falls out and your gun's right back to normal. The reason this is so important is just like firearm safety rules, we stack safety upon safety. This thing is a muzzle plug. Even if you were right then when training in dry fire, pick, a, pick up a fully loaded live magazine, shove it into your gun and rack that slide, it's just going to jam the gun, right? Nothing can go into the breech mm -hmm. um, because it's plugged. There's something there that can't come out until you take it out. So it is your number one safety tool. Now, let's talk about the two different types, right? There's two different types of laser cartridges out there, the good ones and the not so good ones. The ones that are $49 or $59 um, are made like $49 or $59, which means the, uh, the the switch in the back is part of the power circuit. And I don't recommend them. You'll be disappointed. They get dented as, they, as the striker hits them uh, and they get dimmer and dimmer and the software won't pick them up and you have to replace that. If you spend a little more money, and my, mm -hmm. my, the one I love is made by Laser Laser Ammo, Laser-Ammo. Uh, we sell them here. They're $99. But that switch is a, is a little signal that goes to a microprocessor that puts out a fixed length laser pulse um, that your software will always pick up. So this is going back to what we were talking about, the difference between cheap and value, right? You're going to get a lot more value out of the $99 model than you will out of the $59 model, right? Um so I can't even stress how important this thing is. So a real quick description of how how we used it, right? Because one of the things I stress so much in training is finger control, right? Your num that your your index finger, your your trigger finger is the number one safety tool because mechanical safeties fail, right? So you have to myelinate that. You have to have that so ingrained in muscle memory that that finger never curls. Until you get to that point, you will not have confidence over your firearm. And when you don't have confidence over your firearm, you become timid. That creates all sorts of problems, right? As I say in class, you, I, I hold up my firearm. I said, you have to own this gun. 
And uh, so when my wife wanted to do this with me, she had a friend that also wanted to learn to shoot responsibly. So I said, sure, invite him over and we're going to play darts with our handguns in the living room in the middle of town. That didn't sound very safe, but it was extremely safe, primarily because we took our dartboard and hung it on the north wall of my house. That is a safe wall. Safe wall is any barrier that will stop a maximum caliber uh, round that your training weapon could potentially project. In my case, the the north wall of my house is uh, backs up against the freeway. So I have a concrete wall all down the north side of my house. Hang the dartboard on there. And there's three of us in the room. Okay. So kind of wrap your head around this, this visual image. My wife is the shooter. Her friend is a scorekeeper. He's looking at the camera and on the chalkboard and he's keeping score. Um, I am the most important person in the room in that iteration. I'm the range safety officer. And my, I have one job and that's to stand there and watch my wife and say things like, Hey, get your finger off the trigger. Eh, don't bend over on the line. Oh, keep your muzzle down range, right? All the basic safety stuff. So you can imagine getting together and you can play all sorts of games. There's battleship. There's a ton of fun you can have doing this, right? Three months getting together on Friday nights, we're talking thousands of trigger presses, never once being allowed to do it wrong and it not costing you a dime past the initial investment. Now, can I jump in on the, you've made the the critical and important point about myelination of a habit, but at the same time, dry fire is inherently not what a gun does. In other words, not that it doesn't cycle, I don't mean that, but that your shoot the round, rack the slide, shoot the round, rack the slide, shoot the round, rack the slide. I have not been able to find any statistics, positive or negative, that says that a person, I mean, dry fire is, is often seen as the, the best alternative to actual shooting. But the problem that I see with it, theoretically, this is untested, is that a person under stress is going to think at least momentarily about racking their gun because that's what they've done thousands of times in practice. Is that is, is does that in fact ever actually happen in the real world? Well, it certainly could, um, and that's but that's just an issue of, of, of thinking that exactly what you just thought of in advance. Because when we do it, you don't point in, pull the trigger, rack the slide. You point in, pull the trigger, return to holster, back through you know the reverse holster draw, keeping your eye on the target, keeping your muzzle flat, rotate, go into your holster. Once it's in your holster, hands come off, go back reset your trigger then, right? Because you don't want to make it part of a instantaneous automatic process, right? It's it's part of a separate stage. And honestly, in a, in a real world environment, in a firefight, if you go back to your holster, you're done. And if you accidentally, for whatever reason, rack the slide at that point, no autopsy, no foul, right? That's not going to be, that's not going to, that's not going to myelinate uh, sorry, that's probably the inappropriate. No <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that one, but I'll I'll remember that one. Well, <laughs> sorry. I mean, the product that I use in in lieu of that is something called the Cool Fire Trainer. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that it's a it's a very high uh, or a, saying high value makes it makes it seem like it's expensive, and and actually, arguably, it might be expensive because a Cool Fire Trainer will probably cost you almost as much as the gun that it goes into. But for those who don't know, it turns the gun into a CO2 gun because the barrel, which is which is not your barrel, it's the replacement barrel, is a CO2 cartridge. And you just jam some CO2 in it from the muzzle. 
um, you shoot maybe a dozen rounds and then you hit it again for like literally a tenth of a second with a CO2 bottle and it's back up and running and it cycles normally, uh, at least while the pressure is good. So you can get quote unquote more realistic training because it pops a laser in the direction that you're shooting so you can see where the shot would have landed. You can get that recoil impulse except it's costly, um, objectively costly. And I still think it's a good value because how many rounds did I save by buying this thing once? Mm-hmm. But maybe there's alternatives out there that you could recommend as well. There are. like The, the Cool Fire is exactly that. It's pretty cool. Um, I bought one for my wife uh, for her uh, firearm, I don't know, was it two years ago Christmas, three years ago Christmas? She's never used it. Right. That's one of the problems with the cool fires. It does require time of conversion setup, you know, et cetera. And it's not always just mm-hmm. readily available. Uh, but it is, it is pretty cool. And I want to make sure your, your listeners understand we're not, this is not an either or, right? Dry fire training is not a replacement for live fire. It's not a replacement for cool fire. It's not a replacement for alternatives. It is part of what is holster presentation to first round out, right? It's arguably that's what's the most important round, right? Um, if you've trained correctly, a lot of people want to talk about recoil, and, and I have to admit, recoil in a firefight is less than one-tenth of a percent of that entire engagement, right? Because if you've trained correctly, your trigger press happens when your muzzle is in the correct position. And um, during a firefight, you won't even be aware of muzzle flip anyway. Um, but to get back back to your, your point, um, what I train on, Right. The reason I didn't buy myself a cool fire is um, I have a plethora. I have a row of uh, Glock 17 airsoft pistols right there. And I, I get the, the Glocks or the, the KJW makes one also um, that are both green gas and CO2. CO2, uh, green gas in my world is just it's it doesn't recoil hard enough and you constantly having to refill it. And I don't know how many rounds do you get out of the, that cool fire on yours? Well, like I said, it's probably I mean, I didn't buy the barrel extension which mm-hmm. maybe gets it up to 30 or so rounds. Okay. I get maybe a dozen in my okay. in my Glock 17-sized barrel uh, before it just kind of you know, poof, 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 and yeah. peters out, and then you have to you know fill it again. So Glock does have, Glock has a licensed airsoft. It's kind of one of my favorite. KGW makes one. There's also the adaptive trainer. These are professional airsoft. They're, I mean, they're 100 bucks, a little over, 120 The nice thing about them is the CO2 is in the magazine. I'll only buy ones that that have that because that gives a full weight to the magazine. And when it runs up, you do a dump, you know, and you, you know, rack it and you and you're back back on. But so, yeah, there's some major pluses to to that. And that's like the poor man's version of the the cool fire, Um, because when I train, I will I will put X number of of pellets in each of my cartridges or each of my uh, my magazines. And I don't know how many it is. I don't count. Right. I have a little machine that pumps them in. I give it one pump. That could be five. It could be 12. Don't know. Don't know. Put put them in my side saddle, holster up. And then I start doing my training drills. And whenever I run empty, unbeknownst to me, I'm dumping that magazine. I'm running as hard as I can while I'm doing a moving mag swap. Then I'm turning and getting back on target because that is realistic. What's not realistic is standing in a line of 14 people. And the instructor saying, everybody take one step to the right. That's what they teach, right? One step to the right, clear your malfunction, right? Take one step. to. If that's what you train, that's what you'll do. And if you step one step to the the reason they do that, because there's 14 other people and they can't afford in a live fire environment for a mistake to happen and somebody gets shot. 
And this is why I think it's so important to train in dry fire, cool fire, airsoft, wear the safety gear, wear the, wear the goggles, right? Um, and then you can train to what's really going to happen in, in life, right? Because you know what? If you're going to malfunction and somebody's pointing a gun at you, be somewhere else, right? <laughs> you're not going to stand there and toe to toe it. Run. Right. So we have probably oh, 10 or so minutes left. Um, what would you, if, if for people who are not going to get, and, and <laughs> we can talk about Portland as much as we want, but we're not really here to talk That's about Port, Portland <laughs> um, or California for that matter. Yeah. Um, but for people who are not in your area and, and won't have the opportunity to come train with you and, and, you know, actually, I might next time I'm in Portland, who knows, what should they look for? What what makes a good trainer? How does the untrained person who only took the CCW class they had to take or in constitutional carry states just tucked a you know, gun in their pocket or, you know, in their holster and have no training? What do they look for? How do you define a good yeah, trainer? The first two, two things come to mind. Number one talk to your trainers, interview them. I have people, I tell them, set up appointments, come in and meet me and make sure it's a fit. Uh, because uh, uh, my, the training that I do is not mechanical. The training I do is emotional, right? So we train for very scary stuff, uh, realistically, and it's intense. I mean, your first class with me, very first class, I've got you working on uh, emergency mag swap, tactical mag swaps, clearing malfunctions, and I'm yelling at you. I'm putting stress on you. Mag swap, mag swap, you know. That is because we can, because we can do that safely because we're using less lethal ammunition. Uh, we can, you know, massively accelerate that, that training curve. So you want to make sure that number one, your instructor is also a student, right? The minute an instructor thinks they know all that, they're, they're suffering Dunning Kruger at that point and they're going to teach you what they know. You know, and so you want to make sure your instructor is training, he's competing, he's in the world because it changes. Things are changing all the time. I can't tell you just from studying ninjutsu because we teach full body mechanics, right? Motion, movement, all that. The number of, of techniques I've changed because of my history in Northern Shaolin Kung Fu versus my current education in ninjutsu, right? <laughs> it's like we change a, a lot all the time. So no, make sure there's an emotional bond with your instructor. Make sure your instructor is also a student uh, and is humble. And uh, and they give you things. And their goal is not to make you keep coming back to them forever. They should be giving you the tools and the skills um, of how you can either train at home or how do you maximize. We actually have a class called that, how to maximize your range time. Yeah, I think that that's, um, that's really the core is getting the most for given the expense of ammunition now sending rounds down at 30 to 50 cents a round you know emptying a magazine and getting nothing for it is there anything else that you would do that you would let's say you know you're in a state like california where you have a 10 round magazine well if you're done not yet, not yet. <laughs> 50 or five dollars in a, in a few seconds what else do you do that costs that much that you got no value for i mean yeah you know, an expensive coffee is going to probably last longer and perhaps give you as much enjoyment. Well, uh, yeah, let me that. touch on that for a split second, because I think that's a really, really important thing is most people like so they go to the gun range. They don't know what to do there. So they do what they do know. And that's putting holes in a paper target. Right. Um, and I've watched people burn through 250, 300 rounds in a half an hour. Right. 
my first, the class, the firearm fundamentals class, my very first class we teach, we go through one box of ammo, 50 rounds. It takes two hours to get through 50 rounds of ammo. And that's because we are clear and make safe. We're doing mag dumps. We're doing every single round comes with a lesson attached to it. So my advice to all the listeners is when you go to the live fire range, slow down, figure out what motions, what mechanics you will need to go through to maximize your learning experience while minimizing repetitive trigger press. And that helps with your myelination, as you're talking about. What's that? And that helps with the myelination, you say. Absolutely. Like, well, a good example is, you know, most people won't do a mag dump, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're at an indoor range and your magazine bounces over the edge, well, you've right. lost your magazine, right? But I, I take my range bag. I get permission from the range master. I put my range bag right on the little table in front of me. So it's six inches below. I put a soft towel underneath it. Mm-hmm. And the minute... And I'll have my wife load my magazines and I'll have her put snap caps in, dummy rounds, right? Because the minute that sucker goes click, I'm just dump it, go to my side saddle. They will let you do that at most gun ranges, right? Because um, I watch people at the range, what are they doing? They're using their offhand to drop magazines, yeah. right? Uh, you need that offhand to be retrieving your other magazine. So take some classes that teach you the basics, but then reinforce those basics. Figure out how to do it on your own time, at your own range time, but maximize the use of your time to reinforce that, as you said, that myelination. And are you aware, I mean, uh, so, so now you're done, you're, you're done for the day, you're done for the week, you're done training or whatever, and you're at home. Um, do you have any information or, or things that you've done in your research about the myelination, about going through it slowly in your, in your mind? I mean, because I guess the thing, the way I think about this is, you know, I, I go, I go to church, for example, you know, or a movie theater or something, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm sitting here in the pew or whatever, and I'm looking, okay, there's a doorway there, there's a doorway back here, doorway over my right, something, something, something's going to happen, okay, some idiot's going to walk in, what do I do? And I've actually thought this out, the whole thing, what do I do? And I'm doing it slowly in my mind, figure out exactly, you know, who's in my way, you know, what's my backstop, you know, what are clear shots, what aren't, you know, all of that type of thing. But I've never, you know, I'm never done going to do a draw in the middle of church. <laughs> right. yeah. We we talk about that a lot. I mean, that's what we call when then thinking, right? And when then thinking, there's a really good book that I read. Eh, it's a good book. I wouldn't say it's really good, but but it, I picked some some verbiage out of it that helps me communicate better. It's called Seconds to Live or Die. The one that, that comes to mind right now is is the brain can only go where the brain has gone before, right? If your brain has never been there, you will sit in blackout freeze not knowing what to do. I teach this in all my classes. By the way, I teach a lot more than firearms, right? I'm a pepper spray instructor. I'm a a taser instructor. We do CPR, BLS, workplace violence, all that, right? Every class, you know, we talk about that because in a CPR class, I ask people, how on earth could you practice CPR enough to myelinate the process, right? Uh, And the, the way to do that is when then thinking, when you're in a restaurant and you see some, you know, pasty old white dude like me getting in the maitre d's face um, and turning all purple, Play it out in your head. What if this guy hit the floor right now? What if that thing fell off the wall and gave him a great huge cut across his left eye? How would I treat that right now? And my wife and I, include your friends and family in this type of thinking. My wife and I, we were at a new restaurant just just the other day. We were in a Greek restaurant and uh, I'm I'm loving my Mediterranean food, right? And I'm in mid-bite and she's like, hey, where are all the exits? You know, or, you know, what's your escape plan? 
And so I'm like, well, you know, once I swallowed, um, I said, well, this is a strip mall down here by the bathrooms. There's got to be some sort of a loading door, but I'm not banking on that. Right. There's the doors to the kitchen going through the kitchen because 10 gauge stainless steel will stop around. I'm loaded. Um, I could stage myself in there, you know, and we, we literally run that through our head because honest to God, if you're taking skills that you've learned and you're taking that time to play them out in your head, it's almost as good as physically getting up and doing them. You're still firing the same neural pathways and the brain can only go where it has been before. So give it a lot of places to go. You know how much you spent learning that lesson? Nothing. Exactly. And that that was a that was a free lesson. So, okay, I uh, I I want to uh, kind of summarize this. I, I also want to thank you, Greg, um, for coming on on board and yeah. uh, and being our first guest. It will not be the last time you'll be on the show. Um, <laughs> Defensive Arts Center in uh, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, why don't you give them your contact information? And of course, I hope that you will link to the show. You can use this as, as part of that interview process that you said that you want your students to know who you are. I think people have got a pretty good idea who you are, Greg. Awesome. Appreciate that a lot. Uh, best way, just defensivearts.org.org. That's the uh, uh, best way to, to get a hold of us. Phone numbers, everything would be listed on the website. Brand new website, just rolled it out. Very proud of it. Took me almost uh, six months to build that one because, well, I do everything myself. <laughs> Well, that's good. And, uh, you know, Ken and I um, appreciate your time. We'll get you back again, maybe a little bit in the future when we have the opportunity to mature the show a little bit further, come up with some new topics, uh, keep the conversation fresh. And I want to see both of you when you come to Portland. Fair enough. Yes, sir. Well, I don't Greg, think Ken will, but I'll be up there fairly soon. Yeah, well, you've got a son up there. I don't. I uh, Greg, Greg, it's been a real pleasure, and I've really learned a lot, and I very much appreciate your time. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Thanks for having me, guys. Much appreciated. All right. Well, that was a great guest. I very much appreciate having a, a person who actually does this more than just occasionally. A person who's professional actually runs his own business in training people. Uh, I was particularly fascinated as he talked about learning, having your brain have these basically neural pathways so that when you get into that stressful situation, your brain knows how to act and you don't have to think about it. That was very interesting. I also looked up uh, what he had with the laser aiming device and done some research on that. And that is actually going to be one of my future purchases. So what yeah, about you? I agree. Um, and and by the way, listeners, I do sound better now. Uh, we I apologize for selecting the wrong microphone selection in um in Zoom, uh, this is the first time we've done Zoom as the uh, hosting uh, platform because of the remoteness of our guest. I had two different inputs for the microphone. It was a coin flip. I picked the one that made me sound like I'm in a cave. That won't happen again. But getting back to our guest, yeah, Greg was an outstanding guest and really reinforced the value of not just training, but training with a purpose, training with an end state in mind, training for the eventualities that are more realistic than you're going to be attacked by, you know, a B8 center paper target or, you know, even a scary zombie target. Those are not the things that you're going to face in the real world. But also, I had not really given a lot of thought to the problems of training on a range when there's a bunch of people lined up next to you horizontally just for the legitimate concerns about safety. And I think that that was you know, very valuable. Get into a shoot house or get in, get to a range where you can set targets up on your left and your right and in front of you 
you know, do it safely, of course, but do it in a way that probably replicates what you might run into in, you know, the Walmart parking lot or, uh, as one of the local instructors here likes to say, you know, when you stop to get some milk at the local shop and rob. Exactly. Yeah. Safety equipment is kind of one of those important things. Actually, I have purchased for myself a, a vest a while ago, and I used to wear it when I went to some of the public ranges. Um, nice thing about being in Southern California is that we do have a large amount of open space, particularly for Bureau of Land Management land. So actually some of the best shooting that I like to do is out in the desert in basically federal federal land. But wearing safety equipment, particularly a vest or something like that, which is what I, I have purchased. I think, Greg, you might own one too. I'm not sure. I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's good to have. I mean, something to do because it's not so much that you're not going to be safe because you know you're going to be safe. Anybody in your party shooting on your lane or even the lane next to you is going to be fine. But it's just that, you know, people two or three or four lanes down you've never, never met before could be a danger. And I'm always fascinated by the government as they want to go out and they ban, they want to ban safety equipment. What? They want to ban the safety equipment. You'd see it in the state of California and probably elsewhere where they'll say, oh no, there's some tiny percentage of people who criminal element that might use a vest in a nefarious way. So they're going to ban it for everybody. Right. It's insane. It it makes no sense. And, but you know, then again, well, it's not a political show and it's no. also not, it's also not a legal show. You know, we usually, we start with our disclaimer and we didn't mention it up front, but nothing that Greg talked about, nothing that Ken and I talk about is legal advice in any no. way, shape or form. Right. And like you were just pointing out, if you live in a municipality that has restrictions that other municipalities don't, I mean, you better pay attention to those things because, you could run afoul of the law and thinking that you're not doing well. You're not doing anything wrong. You might be doing something illegal. So let's let's distinguish between those two things, right? Right. And we are not lawyers. These are our personal opinions, and some of which we hold rather uh, strongly, which is good. Not not it's not a bad thing to be passionate about one's beliefs. Exactly. But, uh, so up, upcoming shows, what do we have? We have already a, a guest that's uh, going to be lined up that is going to talk about uh, lubrication products for your guns. Uh, yeah. an, another potential guest that I think will be on fairly soon, uh, one from a major parts manufacturer, uh, one from an optics manufacturer. I'm not going to name them right now because they're still kind of in the negotiating dates and, and times stage. Uh, but there, for for those who don't know, the basis of this show really is going to be guests, and we need to get lots of guests on that that give you their story. It's not just Ken and I's opinion; it's the stories that they have to tell. But we're always going to still focus on value, and I think Greg offered you know great value because of the realistic elements that he brings. And how many places can you go use sim munitions if you're not law enforcement? I mean, very few, right? Very few. Very few. So tra- training is very important. And with that, let's bring it to a close. Yeah. What, to a close. So those who want to reach out, frugal firearms podcast at gmail.com. Again, frugal firearms podcast at gmail.com. Uh, be sure to like, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a comment. Even if it's a single word, it actually helps uh, the algorithms uh, boost us up a little bit. And uh, let's grow this audience and and um, and make it something for useful for all of us. All right. Very good. Thanks. All right. Good night, everyone.